welcome to this, our fifth annual event as part of the London Design Festival. We're not here to pretend that design protection in the UK is straightforward or that the system always works, but there are things that you can do to reduce the risk of being copied, and we're here to let you know what you can do and what you can't. There's no one right answer for everyone. Different companies and individuals have different budgets and that they can spend on IP protection, but the important thing is that you know what options are out there so that you can assess what might work for you. And what uh, might work for you today could be very different to what might work for you in a few years' time. On this podcast, I'm honoured to be joined by a panel of true experts in their fields, um, including Martin Derbyshire, who needs a very little introduction, but he founded the legendary Tangerine Design Agency in 1989. Martin is perhaps best known for developing the world's first lie-flat bed in business class for British Airways, a design that contributes more to BA's bottom line to this day than any other. Martin's profile is truly international, taking on tasks such as being a juror for the renowned Red Dot Awards, joining the UKTI on trips to Asia to promote design, and being a visiting professor of Central St Martin's College of Arts and Design. Ellie Runcie is Director of Growth and Innovation and of Future Programmes at the Design Council. Prior to that, Ellie was a project coordinator at the British Museum. Over the years, Ellie has come across very many young designers, whether as part of the hugely successful Spark programme or through other ventures that the Design Council has run. After starting out working with Martin, Rob Law founded Trunky in May 2006, and since then it has sold over 3 million suitcases in 100 countries, with consumers spending over $200 million on his brand. Trunky's head office is called The Mothership, where 30 people are based, and there are over 40 more based at Trunky's manufacturing and distribution facility in Plymouth. A British, a British success story, Rob has had his fair share of knockbacks from the Dragons at Dragon's Den to the Supreme Court in his high-profile design case, but the nation's press came out in support of Rob, except, according to Rob, that Basildon Echo. Rob's biggest, latest big innovation is a trunky for bigger people, the journey, which he is selling slightly differently to the traditional channels that he sells the trunky. Milan Patel is a, an intellectual property lawyer who used to work at a law firm but is now, now has responsibility for all legal issues at Cerevision, including the licensing and protection of its extensive IP portfolio. Cerevision has developed a high-efficiency plasma technology that is a unique and new way to uh, produce energy-efficient lighting. Particularly useful in specialist applications such as horticulture, it can tailor the spectrum output as well as delivering high levels of illumination from a very small source. Millen has been involved in large IP litigation over the years, but his focus is on ensuring that his company has the right level of protection, neither too much nor too little. Perhaps we could start by each of you explaining in brief terms what involvement you've had with intellectual property protection over the years. Maybe Rob, would you like to start? Sure. Um, well, being a, a trained product designer, um, I understand uh, a reasonable amount about uh, intellectual property uh, from trademarks, patents and design registrations. And uh, when I first started showing the trunky concept around, I thought it was pretty important to try and secure some IP. And uh, the idea of a, a ride-on suitcase can't really be patented, so the next best thing was a design registration. Uh, since then we've gone on to register, uh, we, I think we've got a portfolio of something like 65 design registrations, 8 patents and 8 trademarks. Thank you very much. Uh, Martin? Um, gosh, I've had a wide-ranging um, experience in terms of intellectual property. I've had the um, privilege, somewhat scary, of being an expert witness on a major trial, both in terms of design rights and patent infringement. Um, I work with a lot of clients from different market sectors who have very different ranges of experience in terms of using IP, be them design, design registration or be it patent. Um, so we get to connect with people who are making key decisions around how they act and what they do and we always pass them on to an expert who's going to give them sound uh, advice around what they should do. Um, and actually we're also dealing with a lot of startups who, um, in a way, may be clear about what they're they're achieving with IP and are more struggling around how they get money and how they build a business case. But it is still astonishing to the number of people we connect with who um, don't understand about design rights and what they can get from design rights and how much protection that gives 
what is actually a very small amount of money and that I think is particularly important for designers or for those who are startups and looking to make an investment. So it's a, it's a very broad range of experience. Um, the tricky one as a designer is we're often also asked by our clients to, um, to indemnify them against any losses that they may <laughs> encounter um, through ideas that we create, which um, I work very hard to stay as far away from as I possibly can. Now they all know that, thanks to this book. Um, yes, uh, my involvement uh, at Cerevision uh, with regards to our international property um, started out initially actually to oversee a massive piece of, of IP litigation, um, which was uh, both in the US and the UK and, and lasted quite a bit of time. But through that, it, it really brought home to myself and, and all of my colleagues in the R&D department the importance of of ensuring that we protect our, of the new IP that was being developed by the company at that time. And through that, we've um, uh, come up with a uh, quite a large and extensive patent portfolio, which is the, the prime um, IP asset the company has. But we've also filed um, trademarks and, and design right applications where necessary. And, um, it's, it's, it's been a core um, asset for the company, which is recognised by the investors as, as something that they... That they, that they are part of and that uh, um, uh, attracts value for them. Uh, we undertook an IP valuation exercise on the back of the, the portfolio we had and that's proved to be very useful and for us as a company as we've grown to help generate and raise finance it's been, it's been very important. Thanks Mila. Ellie, slightly different perspective from the Design Council? Yeah, different perspective. My involvement with intellectual property has really been through shaping programmes supporting businesses over the last 15 years. So um, we supported over 5,000 small and medium-sized enterprises through a programme called Designing Demand, which ran, ran over 10 years. And it was really um, working in partnership with organisations like the Intellectual Property Office um, and other government-related organisations that I started to make the connection that the strategic design advice that you give to businesses when they're really trying to think through changes in their offering to market, you know, IP advice needs to come in at the really early stages of that. Um, so we were working with startups in that programme. We had uh, quite a, hundreds of, of ideas from entrepreneurs um, with very quite, quite scientific ideas through to very general ideas um, that you could imagine coming to market quite quickly. And it was really, I thought it was a bit of a gap that uh, no one was really advising those early stage entrepreneurs at that proof of concept stage on IP and they were seeing it as something to be afraid of rather than something that could be a trigger for innovation. So um, and that today is, is a programme that we're running called Spark where we're really trying to bring all these different necessary ingredients together for early stage entrepreneurs. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about Spark? Yeah. So Spark is one of a few uh, leading product accelerators in the UK. When I say one of the few, I mean physical product. There are lots of accelerators out there in the digital sense. In fact, I think there are the last report I looked at about 170 um, in the UK alone and, and many hundreds globally. And it's an area that's really, really taken off globally in the last decade. But in the UK still, there there is really a need for entrepreneurs with a physical product idea to get help to get through that very early stage proof of concept phase. So Spark was set up directly to support and fill that gap. Um, it's a 16 week support program for entrepreneurs who think they have an idea, they might have, um, the idea might be at sketch stage, or it might be a physical prototype that, that is currently being tested or about to be tested, or they might be beyond that stage. Um, and what we do is we put them through their paces with different experts coming in at different times through the 16 weeks. It's led through design expertise, but we bring in IP, we bring in access to finance, we bring in strategic marketing and how to write business plans. So all of that is woven together in a really good, tight package over the time frame. They get £15,000 to help them develop their idea. So again, that's quite a unique thing, um, as well as the advice. The funding element is something that I think every entrepreneur needs to help them through that tricky first uh, proof of concept phase. And at the end of the 16 weeks, those that have actually gone through the programme with the funding have the opportunity to pitch for a share of up to £200,000 more funding. Um, at that stage, what they've really got to be able to do is influence an investment panel that their idea is just about ready to take off or they know what they need to do in order to make it really take off. So that funding is really to help them get to market. 
And the thing that's really different about Spark is that the programme, although uh, we fund the ventures, um, we actually run a fund alongside it, so the ventures and entrepreneurs that end up getting to market make a very small percentage return to the fund, which gets reinvested to support future entrepreneurs who want to take their idea to market. So it's a sustainable fund. So it's quite different from anything out there, really, that might look at equity um, or other similar models to have more ownership in the business. We don't look for that at all. Excellent, thank you. Um, Robin Miller, probably a question for you, um, as you actually work in businesses that um, create and then own the IP, as opposed to Martin obviously advises those businesses. Um, what, when you're looking at as a, an IP protection, um, what decisions are central to your approach uh, in terms of what to get or how to how to go about the, the issue of getting IP protection? Milan, do you want to go first? Yeah. Um, from our perspective, we sort of starting point over recent years has been ensuring um, protection of the new idea that the scientists might have come up with. Um, primarily because uh, that's the core asset that the company is working to develop um, and, and to use and, and exploit and, and market to third parties in, in potential commercial discussions. Um, we, we know over the years that um, in many ways some of our published patents have been some of our best marketing tools um, because the competitors um, in our sector, the likes of Philips, GE, uh, Osram, um, you know, uh, they would be checking the, the, the published patents as they come through, reviewing uh, portfolios of third parties to see where there may be gaps or, or not. Um, and we've had uh, a number of discussions that have arisen at trade shows, etc., as a result of conversations starting about IP and, and patents that have been filed. Um, and then beyond that, there's always the, the issue of cost and ensuring that whatever you're doing is relevant um, to the business strategy um, in, a, in a sort of cost-effective manner. Uh, Rob, you, uh, the other half of my question was actually how has your approach changed over time? Do you want to tell me, because you've gone from startup to um, big successful business, um, tell me how, how you approach IP protection sort of now and, and what lessons, big lessons you've learned over the years? Uh, well, I guess um, <clears throat> we've always strived to obtain um, patents on our product ranges. Uh, and to differentiate the range from the, uh, the Halo brand of Trunky by giving them their own trademarkable names and just really trying to roll up a lot of IP protection around all our products. Um, I mean, as a brand, we're, <coughs> we're only as valuable as our IP, primarily around trademark, but all our product lines have been quite un innovative and unique, so we've managed to obtain patent protection for, for pretty much all of them. I think the government's um, launched some interesting schemes over the years that have really made us kind of embrace things like patents, such as the patent box and the R&D tax credits, uh, which has made us, uh, uh, when you've developed a patented product or um, uh, uh, when you've applied for a patent for, then it makes it a lot easier to claim back on your R&D. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure a huge amount has changed. Um, as, as we've grown bigger, we've had a bit more available cash to invest in. Uh, the IP and um, it, it can be incredibly expensive and, and just managing a portfolio of eight patents on the land must have a fair few more than that it's hugely expensive for us but uh, uh, we're building an asset there that um, is probably the most valuable asset in the, in the business on the trademark. When you say hugely expensive is that partly because presumably you're looking at things on quite a global level? Um, yeah I mean without even thinking we go for um, UK, China and America and then depending on the product we'll extend that whether it be out in Europe or Southeast Asia. Okay. Um, you have quite a diverse product, I mean all within the sort of children travel category but you, you have quite a diverse range of products now from I think we've got sort of sandwich boxes through to mm -hmm. obviously the suitcases and, and beyond. Do you protect designs in and, and patents where you can in, in everything or just in the most important products? Or? Uh, we'll, we'll file a registered design for just about everything, unless um, one or two products we, we have sourced from the open market, so we can't protect those. But um, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we will file a, a registered community design for all our products. Um, and that's the learning there is, is some of the successes we've actually had on the back of protecting our designs okay. over in other countries outside of the UK. Um, and, um, and that's been really valuable to, to have a document that states this product that looks like this 
has a, fire, a, a kind of an official start date, if you like. So when you're uh, filing for Chinese copyright, you've got a, a legal document that the that the powers that be over there recognise, rather than um, not having anything that isn't an approved document. I have heard it said that um, the new UK design registered design fees being, I think it works out two pounds per design now if you file a hundred on the same day. Um, so for two hundred and fifty pounds or whatever it is, you get you get about a hundred designs, um, provided you apply online or something. Um, have you? any thoughts on whether that is actually quite a good system for using it purely simply as a record of when you design something and whether it's a, a system you could use as just evidence of your design before example things like in China? I guess as we're trading across Europe, trading globally, we haven't really considered the UK system since um, the European one came out 10 years ago, no, however long ago, 2003. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll only do European designs. Um, but obviously the UK system is a is a very uh, low cost um, solution. How that's interpreted by other governments and intellectual property offices, I'm not sure. Um, Martin and Ellie, one, one, one for you. You've both worked with numerous businesses and designers. What would you say were the most common mistakes that you've seen? Martin, <laughs> Ellie's nomination you to go first. Okay. Um, well, I guess I've got to own up that we probably made the classic mistake when we set out in 1989 because we weren't actually called Tangerine then. And we received a letter through the door from a design consultancy in Holland who had, a, who had the same name as we originally chose and they said, you're going to have to change. Um, so in a way it turned out to be a success story because we did change and became Tangerine and then registered Tangerine as a trademark and because of that have been able to defend our brand um, which we've done on at least one occasion and that's, I think that's a very important issue so if you're a startup trademarking the brand name in the areas that you're likely to trade into is really fundamental um, I think the common one we see from a lot of startups is not utilizing design registration because of you've mentioned already John it is very low cost it does give you uh, quite strong powers and I think also I stress and I hope I'm correct in this that you know it's quite strong in China if you're trying to trade in the China market it's it's a much more easy way of defending what you're doing than than perhaps using other forms of IP. So we so frequently see that. On that. Rob, your, your experience of trying to enforce in China, what, what do you think? Yeah, well, you, <clears throat> so the, the front line of um, copying now is online with the global marketplaces. Um, so we've all heard of Alibaba, but in China they've got two key sites called Taobao, Timor, actually a third one called 1688. Uh, and Taobao, a bit like like an almost eBay in China, but that's where the factories sell direct to the public, uh, and that really is the the real front line. So being able to police your your IP on those platforms is critical. Initially, I started doing that. That almost turned into a full time job. Delegated it to a few people throughout the business, and eventually it just became too big a project, and we now outsource it. But since outsourcing, and we get nice reports now. Uh, the last over the last three years, we've taken down four and a half thousand listings off those those global platforms. So it does work. Yeah, it, well, it works when you, you can outsource it to an expert because it is whack-a-mole. You you take it down the next day, it pops back up. You take it down, it pops back up. So, um, and also having having things that are easy for people to understand. So we, we actually haven't gone through uh, the process with patents yet. Um, we haven't needed to, but in China, obviously, they've got the the people behind the scenes who say yes that's a trademark infringement or yes that's a registered design infringement because it's pretty obvious if you start getting into patents then yeah it takes a lot longer um martin sorry i interrupted you no it's fine uh remind me of the question uh, are you going to get the question was the most common uh, mistakes <laughs> that you've seen ellie perhaps you'd like i to. mean i think i was reflecting on this i think that um on Spark, you know, if I look back at all the applicants over the last three years or so, it does seem like the majority, uh, three quarters of all applicants or more than, haven't thought about IP, but all of them are stating that they've got an idea that they could think could be really commercially successful. Um, those that we actually bring on to the first stages of the programme, we call it Design Camp, 
um, a quarter of them by that stage do have a design re registration. Some have even actually um, filed for patents or have started to explore the process for patents. So, you know, I think as that's just an indicator for me that we're, we're looking for that as a, we're not an investor, but, you know, to back the ideas that are sure to have more, more potential in the market. We're looking for people who have already started that process or at least they're thinking about it. But um, it's never too early to think about it and I, I do, I'm always surprised at how many people really aren't even at those early stages. Second thing is, is perhaps, and I understand why, but a potential to be overly protective about their idea. So we have had entrepreneurs come on the programme who literally will not talk to even us about the idea and we're there to try and help them. And so it's that thing about absolutely being careful about not sharing your crown jewels with everyone but the thing is that we really need entrepreneurs to get out there and talk to people about their idea because especially now with the world being so digital um, you could create a community around your idea in no time which could help you then kickstart an amazing crowdfunding campaign or another kind of fundraising campaign so I think sort of knowing how much to talk about your idea knowing and not to be overly protective of that I think is another mistake and the third thing is that a lot of entrepreneurs tend to, you know, because they've got one idea, one, one physical product idea, and they don't necessarily realise the potential value that that could have in, in the market, or that it could be a range of, it could be a solution to a range of problems out there across a number of markets. So, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes really important for, to bring people away from that short-term one product focus to think long-term future-proofing if it grows into a business it isn't just one product it could be a portfolio think about your brand at the same time there are all sorts of other commercial factors to bring in at that um, early stage so yeah those are the three things really I think you know think about it early take the long-term view and don't be afraid to talk about your idea I think it's probably worth adding there that um, when you, when people are nervous about talking about their ideas as long as they've entered into some form of confidentiality arrangement then they should feel more free to talk about their ideas with the relevant people, as long as they do that with only a select few, because obviously confidentiality agreements are all well and good, but if you told the world, then somebody's probably going to breach it. And just to be more specific then, I think, you know, we're helping entrepreneurs think about who are the people they need to go out and talk to about their idea, because some of them will be potential users of, of the product, and by talking to users, you could get really invaluable insights about even greater value that you could bake into your idea, that you could have greater potential to protect. So um, I think there's talk just understanding the different people and mapping that out. So yeah, by the time you are talking to potential customers or people who are going to manufacture your product or, or you're going to license it to, you know, obviously those are different conversations to have. So it is understanding that and being given that advice, I think. Another, another point just on that is I think you, you hinted at it, which is that you don't have to tell everybody everything. No. So you can tell somebody what your idea is. And if it's a design, you don't necessarily need to show it to them. You just tell yeah. them what the idea is and that's yeah. not going to ruin any design protection anyway. Well, we would always say that the best design story is usually a benefits-driven story as well, because it's usually a problem that you're solving for someone out there. So um, even if you are trying to engage potential customers or users of your product, then it should be a benefits-driven thing anyway to make people want to sit up and go, so how does that work then? Yeah. And then and then you're away. Rob, I think you were going to say something like that. Yeah, I, was, <clears throat> I think patents are very... Uh, put a lot of people off when, when, mm. when you talk about IP patents are the first thing most people think yes. of, not fully understanding them uh, and you kind of get your classic shed inventor who won't tell anyone but the design process is all about prototyping, getting feedback, improving prototyping, getting feedback and, yeah. and developing an idea and you can never develop an idea if you're telling anyone about it so you're only ever going to stay in the shed and it will never see the light of day so people have to be a lot more open and as you're saying you can get forms of, of, of protection around disclosure um, but it's more, I, I believe it's more important unless you're getting into real technical stuff uh, it's more important to get that valuable feedback initially than to try and not talk or develop any, anything. I had a classic once uh, an inventor contacted us who had invented a, um, a uh, suitcase that turns into a deck chair and he wouldn't talk to anyone until he had patented it um, who's going to buy a suitcase that turns into a deck chair, what do you do with all the sand that goes in there? Can we close it? So yeah, I think it's really important to get out there and talk to mm. the target market. I think it's an important distinction there between patents and designs, actually. Mm. Um, the patent is like, let's, let's take your, your, your uh, deck chair 
chat because I don't know the product, so I'm not going to be preaching any confidences. Um, the, the, the invention there is not going to be the idea of a suitcase that turns into a deck chair. It's going to be how it does it. It's going to be how the hinges yes. work, how, yeah. how the yes. thing folds up and unpacks. You can talk to people in this sort of level of detail without ruining any patent for the actual way it works. And I expect you can talk about a lot of your products that you've got patents for even before you've got the patent mm -hmm. for it necessarily because it could be about how the clasp works in a particularly good, effective way. You don't need to show people that in advance. Yeah. Um, and a design, as I was saying before, can be registered very, very cheaply, especially in the UK. Um, and so you could just get that design in the UK so that you feel more free to talk about it. You can then use that as a springboard to get your European and your Chinese mm -hmm. and your US designs. You've got a limited period of time to, to, to um, expand it out into other countries. Um, but that gives you that reassurance that for a very low amount of money you can you can and you can do it yourself online. There'd be dragons there, but um, but but it's worth looking at it's better than nothing um, and um, if you've done that you'll feel slightly more reassured that you can talk more freely because I agree that um, it is definitely worth getting that uh, discussion going with potential investors potential users because as Rob says it's not worth having a product that nobody's going to buy especially if you start investing in patents in it. Mm -hmm. um, one, uh, one further point about to make is that on the patenting side you can uh, file in the UK a, a, a provisional patent application which gives you 12 months of, of protection during which time you can develop your idea further before turning it into a, a non-provisional filing which is then published in time. So that could give people some more confidence to, to speak about their idea more openly, knowing they've got the, 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 the stamp uh, with the date saying that they've got protection from that, from that point forward, um, if that can help. Now we've used that recently. We, we patented something ourselves which first for you guys yeah for first for, uh, that we wanted to as an opportunity to talk to potential customers around some very large-scale customers and whilst people think of patent filing as expensive actually in terms of a marketing tool in in that case you know versus an exhibition stand or you know reaching a very visible um, situation it was a good value route of on the one hand giving us some form of protection but actually, you know, the idea that we're really looking to develop lies behind that one. It's not central to the first. There are other elements that you need to bundle in together, which help then create something which we think is more commercially valuable. So we used it as a route of A, giving us protection, and then B, also enabling us to talk more openly to who customers may be. Because this is not something that we can take to market ourselves. Mm -hmm. This is something that we would look to license it's just far too big a challenge for us to, to want to deliver. But I think that's an important aspect for designers to give consideration to. But then again, you need good advice around it. You know, because we often trawl Espacenet to look at Google patterns just to get some basic understanding of what's out there. But it's only once you've got some real advice that you can understand. Actually, there may be an existing patent which is lapsing or someone hasn't looked to protect it. And your idea... You know, is, is you know is no longer um, secured by that existing IP. So you really do need to get you know, good professional assistance in what you're doing. There is such a complex sector, and, and getting the, it right is. And important. the British Library's IP centres are a very good first step as well with uh, free advice. Yeah. Um, now we've talked about some of them already, but if anybody's got any more success stories they've seen, either within your own organizations or elsewhere, of things where IP has helped, um, it, it either helped bringing in investment or bringing it, uh, stopping copycats or um, you know whatever, don't really mind, but, but if we can just discuss a couple of ways in which IP has helped businesses, so looking at it from the other way around, why, not why should they get it, but what, what has it actually achieved, that would be interesting to know. I can give a couple of examples. Um, first off, the Trunky was trademarked in 2003, mm -hmm. and although we've had lots of copy products, primarily from Southeast Asia, virtually none's copied the trademark because we've got a very um, established trademark um, on the global systems. Uh, secondly, I guess five years ago, we, we got some private equity investment into the business, and when we were pitching the business, they were all really surprised at the level of IP protection we had and the amount of IP we had. So really investing in that in the earlier days has, was proved really valuable. Um, and then I guess just through us constantly fighting all these copycats, uh, I've got a, 
a slide that kind of almost shows all the copies that started off after a couple of years of trading where they're exact copies all the way through to these kind of mutated monstrosities but it's, it's, it's almost a perfect example of if you start shouting about your rights, your design rights, you're forcing people to change the design and design and changing it for the least better quite often. So uh, you end up with something that isn't very marketable or no one would really want to buy um, because they know they can't copy our rights and, and the people who are copying are the people who invest in, in design. I think that's an important point, Meryl, which is that um, you, you can never stop the copycats. I get often asked, so how do you stop people copying you? The answer is you can't stop people copying you. The question is whether or not the copies are marketable in their own right. Mm -hmm. And as you've said, you've got um, no doubt a flattering number of uh, different products that have, because you've started effectively a category of, of products. So you, you, your, your protection should therefore be relatively broad, but you're mm -hmm. not going to own entirely the rolling child suitcase no, in the shape sure. of an animal market. And, and that's been shown in, in cases and everything. But it's still valuable to you is the impression I get because you've made it so that one, you have a reputation for going after people who copy you and that's absolutely valuable in its own right. And two, as you say, it's meant that the copies have had to move further and further away from you. Yes, they probably remind people of a trunky, but they know that they're getting what you would presumably describe as a second rate mm -hmm. or third rate <laughs> uh, version um, and people know what they're doing. And, uh, you, we've mentioned brands a bit, and I'm keen to make sure that we cover that off as well. I know this is a designs podcast, if you like, but, but, but brands are important. And I imagine that for you, selling yourselves as being, if you like, the original and the best is an important part of your marketing strategy, is it? Yeah, in Southeast Asia, that is the product description, the original, right on no, the case. No. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, as... Uh, kind of does keep you on, on your toes as well. I mean, throughout the years, we've launched five different versions of the trunk. You're now on the Mark V, which is made in the UK. And for Southeast Asia, it's actually made in, in, in China as well. But that product has no metal parts. 25 metal screws and pins that used to hold together the previous version were eliminated when we reshored production back to the UK. So it's very quick and easy to assemble. So our, in the UK, our, our, it made it, it allowed us to manufacture in the UK because the assembly side was a lot cheaper and quicker. And then those benefits have come in through uh, replicating that design out in Asia as well. Um, but you're constantly innovating and, and trying to make your product better. Um, so much so that we now carry a five-year guarantee with our product as well. So we're, we've had the product out in the market for 11 years. And we're so confident in it now that we offer the five years. I certainly know they last. They, they take quite a hammering for my children's ones or anything to go by. Um, have you managed to? So Ellie was talking about how you take a you take a bit of IP and you don't necessarily see beyond your own nose when you're first starting out because you're so dedicated on that one product. Have you seen your IP in a general sense deployed into things like the the new journey, so it's not the newish journey mm -hmm. product, um, or is it, did you start from scratch with that? Well, the, the first big. The second big product we launched was Booster Pack, Carson Backpack, right. and that was all around patents, trademark, design registration, all, all considering all those at the same time when we were developing the product. So, yeah, uh, developing something that could be patented, um, creating the brand name, because although it was a trunky product, it, it needed to be, we wanted to, people to call it a product name. Um, and then uh, on the design registration, just as a, an extra tool for further protection. Any other success, success stories around the table? Anybody seen IP working as a way of generating income or being stopping other people? Or In addition to, to the points Rob touched upon, something that proved very useful for us was um, Cerevision was successful in, in obtaining a government grant uh, three or four years ago from, um, at the time Vince Cable announced it, came second to, um, I think, Jaguar in a competition. And part of that due diligence process was a was quite a close look at our IP um, and it, it, it really did help us we believe with hindsight that um, we had you know a, a UK company that had spent a considerable time and effort in developing a, a patent portfolio uh, to protect all aspects of the technology was I think one of the factors that helped us uh, to be successful in that in that process um, so it, it, it shouldn't it uh, clearly isn't, no one underestimates it but this was an additional benefit for us over and above going to investors or, or raising raising finance through the traditional means. All the examples we always talk about, you gave kindly gave the introduction with BA Club World, they have a patent 
on that format of their seating two years from expiry. Now, it, you know, that invention has protected space on the plane, which has a direct association to, to revenue. You know, it, it is the profit engine of the business, as they talk about. Um, for the designers who may be listening, that's where, you know, I think it's fair to say we also screwed up because we just did a project, you know, as a, as a paid piece of work on a fee which looking back I think was a fair fee for the piece of work but in terms of the benefit to our client and the benefit that design can deliver you know it's enormous I mean if you multiply out the profits they've made versus the fee we charged you know I think I've used the Don't example think before it. it's, you know, <laughs> it's like 0.0000000000001% you know or less even um, but then that's fine because it's been an important thing for us. It's helped us um, secure other business in this area. Um, there's a huge risk involved in them launching that product. You know, it's never an easy decision to make, and um, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. I think the other example we talk about is Sky, and with Pace Microtechnology because Pace invested tremendously in developing um, the technology behind Sky Plus. Sky have benefited hugely through that joint working together with Pace, um, through the melee of trying to get that product to market and make it happen, nobody protected the spinning lights and LEDs on the front of the box. And that's been replicated by so many um, you know, other copiers over time or following brands over time. Um, that's just a case of where, you know, they've still benefited enormously, but they, you know, they could have prevented others from following their path and made it more difficult for others to create a reputation for themselves. I think this goes to Had they done that? I think this goes to Ellie's point about thinking about your IP out of the context of you're so driven to making a box that records the TV and you can pause it. Nobody thinks about the fact that the spinning, presumably no. to an extent, I mean, no offence to your designers who designed it, functional product uh, feature of having some LEDs to show whether it's playing or recording, yeah. to turn that into effectively almost a a brand for Sky yeah. at the very beginning before then used by others as well. Yeah, and at that point our focus was, you know, our, our research indicated quite clearly that consumers did not understand the value this device brought to them and nobody had experienced Timeshift TV before. You know, they, they'd never imagined that they could just be watching television, the doorbell rings, press the pause button, run to the door, answer it, speak to somebody, come back, press play and exactly where they were. It's an incredibly simple thing. But um, a driver for this happening was that people had to pay for the box for the first time previously. They'd just been given the service, whereas this time the investment was so large they were being asked for, for money to, to buy in to owning the product. So people were going to think much harder about whether they adopted or not. Um, and the flashing but, lights helped. Yeah, the flashing lights <laughs> helped. Yeah. And it has been a colossal success story for them, which is, which is great. Yeah. Well, something similar on the technology or high-tech side. Uh, going back now 12 years, we worked with a startup spin-out uh, of a university. They're a team of three, and they had a microchip that um, is pretty much without, like, the, the very obviously very difficult, sensitive um, things behind it, I won't say, but a sensitive nose that can sniff out um, chemical agents in the atmosphere. And they, they've worked out exactly where they wanted to apply it in their first sort of market um, path. But they actually took a pause and thought about all the different possible uses and benefits of what else could this thing sniff out. So if it can sense dangerous chemicals in the atmosphere, what kind of atmospheres, if we think about the atmosphere at large and then let's bring it back down to earth and think about in the fridge or in transportation or in our mouths. Um, and working with them we ended up mapping out about seven different industries that this technology could really make a transformational difference in. And so they started out as a team of three, they're now a team of about 100 technicians in Cambridge and they immediately went back to their investors once they could show this roadmap of applications over a number of years. Their investors were almost, well, they couldn't believe their luck, <laughs> they were thinking, just giving you a million dollars, we might now triple that. Um, but they are actually doing really well, they're one of our leading nanotech uh, businesses. But the really exciting development is one of the ideas um, is really starting to take shape now, which is like a breathalyzer that can detect uh, certain types of cancer from your breath. Um, when I know this is a big area at the moment in healthcare, but they started off in, in a completely different 
territory and I don't think they would ever have seen themselves going into healthcare but by working that out 12 years ago and the sort of patent protection route that they could then take to think we know where we could be, we know where our brand needs to be, we know how to optimise the product for all those different market needs when we come to apply it and now we can put together a really really great sort of robust protection plan if you like or a, a plan that will help us grow and be the leader in those different fields that we want to be. Um, and I, I still think they're We've worked with many startups since then, but they're still probably because they were one of the first that we worked with, but they're doing so well because that's of great. it. Yeah, that's a good example. Um, changing tax slightly, we, we've talked about um, protection in general terms, we haven't talked about it in a practical sense. Yeah, I mean, it, as a designer starting out, or even somebody who's slightly more established, it's hard to know where to start. Uh, and hopefully this podcast is helping and some other materials we have on our website will help as well. But um, you can't, get protection for everything immediately if you're starting out. Um, you know, you, you work for a company who, that's it's relatively small yes. um, and, um, and and you've got some sort of great, I mean, obviously you guys are more focused on patents but you have other protection as well. But I mean, maybe it's more relevant for patents because they're the more expensive end of IP protection there are other things that are cheaper. Where do you start with things like um, deciding how much of your, if you like, budget to allocate to IP for things like international protection. You can't protect in the whole world all at once. So, so, so just tell us how you go about thinking about it. So, I mean, for us, the sort of core markets um, that we feel we will always wish to have patent protection in, because you know, from our market analysis, we feel that, that there will be or there is demand for our products in, in Europe, um, China, Japan, and US. So we would always seek to start um, any international filings in, in those four countries, or four jurisdictions, um, uh, with every application. Beyond that, one we, we try to also think about where our competitors m may well be. So within the lighting space, for example, LG has some very good technology in this area. So we, we've historically sought to file patents in, in South Korea for that reason. and then. In, in previous years, we've considered sort of low-cost manufacturing centres, so thought to have protection there. But the, the fundamental point from our perspective now is just just to be very proactive with the um, the portfolio. It is very large for our as a company of our size, sort of over five hundred applications, and it's a case of making sure that the technology that that's covered by that patent is still relevant to us. Um, that, that the that the inventors, the R and D team, still feel there's some value to, to retaining protection there, from a technology perspective and a licensing perspective going forward, and then um, thinking about well, which markets we're really going to enter into. So currently, our focus as a company is on is on horticultural lighting, um, light sources that can complement other lighting to to improve the taste and, and yield of, of a crop. And there are certain obvious markets where um, more, you know, there's, there's more work being done in those areas. So, for example, Holland is an obvious case where um, there are the greenhouses are, you know, as you fly in to, to skip on a, make it very clear that, that they're heavily involved in that sector. Um, so you, you, you just need to keep, keep constantly focused on, on, on what's really relevant to the company as the, as the focus of the company changes. So we, we've moved in terms of our approach away from certain areas of, uh, and applications of lighting to currently uh, horticulture. And that's sort of going to be the, the way we, we position ourselves going forward with the technology and the, and, the, and the patent protection. You can't apply for a patent on Mars yet, can you? <laughs> no, no, not yet. Or <laughs> <coughs> Saturn, wasn't there? So uh, the uh, Kasani uh, probe found some kind of thing on Saturn for future life. <laughs> Rob, what about you? So, um, you obviously, your main IP rights probably are, are designs. Now, designs range from unregistered designs that are, I mean, you've had success even, yeah. in, even in the UK in unregistered designs. I mean, it's, it's less reported, but in your case, uh, you won, won, a, won a lot of unregistered mm -hmm. design at the first uh, outing. Um, to what extent do you, um, I mean, obviously you don't plan to rely on unregistered designs, but, but any tips for the people listening about how one might rely on unregistered designs um, you know, you've been through a case where they were tested. What, what, what sort of records did you need to keep? What sort of thinking did you have to have when looking at unregistered? And then, obviously, how do you approach registered? 
Yeah. So what our case was really based around the kind of 2003 area, then 2006 when we first started trading, so kind of 10 to 8 years prior to the, 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 the legal case. Um, so uh, on the unregistered side, um, the opposition felt that I probably hadn't kept enough records, so therefore they could keep pushing the case through without... Um, without burning their fingers uh, and weren't convinced that I designed every single aspect of the product. Uh, so when I stood up in court and had my say, uh, the opposition had to sit down halfway through their time slot because I was wiping the floor with them. Um, uh, and I had kept all my records, so um, I was able to prove that certain designs had, elevate, had, had come about and through a process. Um, so uh, unregistered, I think, in the UK... Um, the general consensus is unregistered is more you, you have more success um, with unregistered design than you do with registered uh, which doesn't sort of really make sense but that just seems to be the way it is um, a great little example of our, our, our big case where we did eventually lose um, the other side had copied exactly the over center class that was on the original product um, and I had a, an initial issue with the first version of that where the catches would pop open um, and um, um, I was able to prove that that was my original unregistered design um, so when they were ruled that when that was ruled in our favour the other side decided that they weren't going to pay me a royalty for that feature and they're going to redesign it so they redesigned it badly and had a huge problem with their catches um, uh, and various problems with the product in the market so, so little elements like this can can come come round and, and be actual good little nuggets of uh, e even the smallest elements of some designs can be crucial to them, and if if done differently, can result in poor performance of the product. Which helps with your marketing overall, but yours yeah. is the original and the best because because yours isn't having these problems in the market. I mean, outside of design registration, I think the the challenge around patents is it's a it's a ticking clock, isn't it? So when you when you have filed your you have various periods of time where you need to extend into various countries. And it's really when you start extending globally that it can get incredibly expensive. Um, so it is a, a kind of a race against time to prove there's some commercial appetite for your product, raise some funds to protect it in the, those relevant markets. So that's the real challenge. And, and actually going back in time, thinking about myself and the situation I was in when I first started, I didn't have any money to invest in patents. And even if I had, it would have just been a UK granted patent, which would it could have meant everyone else in the world could have copied me, because mm. I'd never had the funds to register the patent in any of the territories. So uh, uh, the time frame that Trunky took to take to market was several years, so there was no money to extend any protection anywhere originally. So in terms of records uh, that you kept for the unregistered designs, for those listening who haven't maybe decided they can't afford to have registrations at all, either patents or registered designs, um, what sort of records were you relieved to see you'd kept? The most helpful was actually going through old CD-ROMs because they actually had dates next to them so I was able to know when I'd scanned a piece of paper. Um, I didn't uh, know exactly when I sketched it but because it was so long ago the date of the scan was good enough as evidence that it was at least up until that point. We'll work um, on the basis you don't have to explain to the audience what a CD-ROM is. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, um, and then another great system is using ACID, anti-copying in design. They have a, a great service for their members where you can upload your designs, unregistered designs, to their confidential database. And then that serves as a date stamp to say um, when you had officially created that conceptual sketch. I think that's a, that's a great point. There are ACID is one of them and there are other great providers as well who who basically just give you that third-party independent evidence because you can fabricate system clocks on your computer and so on. So don't just think that a file name being saved on a particular date is necessarily evidence. And of course, you may have amended that document since. I had a case recently where um, the other side tried to argue that they had um, designed something on a particular date, but the modified date was actually, so created, yes, way back, but the modified date was actually the date they printed it for the case. Um, which destroyed the if you like, purity of it because at that point one could argue well how do we know what was the original file and what was amended last week and it's very important with computer files in particular that you don't overwrite your original files because I think a lot of 
I'm no designer, but but a lot of CADs, the way you might you might start from an old design and update it, and it therefore doesn't necessarily work as evidence of the date on which you did a particular design. And if if it's too far back and it wasn't in fact your design, that may damage your case because you may want it to be more recent so that you can show that you've still got the protection now because it obviously expires after a, a period of time. So sending it to a third party company such as Acid or um, the old-fashioned way is print it out and post it to yourself yeah, with a date yeah. stamp, uh, <laughs> registered post with a date stamp. Um, that, 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 that's the basic way of doing it. Um, on the way that registered designs work in the UK these days, um, it's actually cheaper to uh, file a registered design for your design if it works, even if you think that registered design is invalid because it may not be new enough altogether or whatever. The government will effectively keep it on their register for you for well, the first five years before you even have to worry about a renewal, and it's cost you a couple of quid. Um, and it's worth thinking about that as another way of having just purely as third-party evidence for your unregistered protection. Um, but uh, as I said, they, uh, the, the independent databases are, are good as well. There's, there's a number of different ways of doing it. All we really ask is that you do one of them, <laughs> because it's really important to make sure you can prove who designed your design, when you designed it, and what it looked like. Um, and, and if you keep those records, unregistered design can be one of the most effective ways of protecting your, your rights. Um, on, the, on the flip side of that, uh, an American company tried to sue us for what they thought was copying their product, but we, we keep all the paperwork, all the design development, and we're able to show a story of a, how a design evolved from various options through to the final product, so we didn't copy them at all, because we had evolved the whole design process through these stages so keep all your paperwork defensively as well yeah. I think that's a very important point actually um, having done a number of cases over the years the ones the ones who lose most readily are the ones where they just can't prove how they designed it they may have designed it independently they may not have done but just sitting there and telling the judge that you designed it independently without any records to back it up just looks odd lawyers yeah. lawyers and, and lawyers become judges lawyers expect there to be paper the real world, I know there isn't necessarily paper for every stage of a design, but the lawyers will expect there to be some form of records of your design process. So make sure you keep them, thinking about both defensively and, and in your favour, um, going, going you know, with IP, because you don't mm -hmm. want to be accused. Big, big companies and smaller are accused of copying. Uh, in fact, bigger companies are often accused of copying more than the small ones. And um, it's very important to ensure that you do have records of how you came up with your design to show that it was done independently. Because for unregistered design, if you haven't copied it, then you can't be found to infringe it, even if the product is, is identical. Um, one point that Rob made was that unregistered designs are more successful than registered designs. I think that's right at court. I don't know that that's right at the early stages. I think that there is an argument that having um, a certificate um, showing your design with the date and the official stamp can be very useful for takedowns on uh, online marketplaces in other countries. I think, Rob, you mentioned yeah, that earlier. Absolutely. Um, I've certainly, my experience is that registered designs help nip things in the bud more, but the harder cases are the ones that go to trial and, uh, and, and they can be less successful when you get to trial. But that doesn't mean that they're not worthwhile. Um, Rob, you've had some high-profile frustrations with the English system. Um, one, presumably you still use it, and two, um, have you changed anything about your approach to IP in the UK as a result of your case? What, what do you do differently now, um, albeit you don't accept the result of the case necessarily? What, what have you learned from it that you now apply to your practice? Uh, well, I guess we're fighting internationally, so we haven't really used the UK system since. Um, and uh, we were registering line drawings for the last seven years rather than the very first design registration that, or one of the very first hundred that were in the European system, which was the, the grayscale CAD, infamous grayscale CAD rendering. Um, so nothing's really changed. Um, there's just a lot more uncertainty about what it is you should do. Um, and the other side argued that uh, the iPad example was a, a line drawing showing the absence of surface decoration. So you could argue that if you had a line drawing, you, you were trying to explain that you didn't want decoration. Minimalism, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, all the arguments used in our case kind of have a counter-argument, but uh, it's, it's, it's a bit confusing. 
Um, it is confusing. I would, I would agree with you on that. And I think this, this debate about whether you can have a line drawing that shows minimalism or is just blank because it could have any amount of detail is a difficult thing for people when they're approaching filing of designs. It's worth saying that if you're filing UK designs, you can explain whether it is minimalism or um, open. You, you can describe your design a bit in the detail of the application. On the European system, which is what Rob's case was about, you, you can't do that. The, the court will consciously avoid reading the, the detail underneath. So it's worth, it's worth knowing that if you're out there wondering how to deal with that particular problem. Um, there's also some uh, guidance that was published by the UK IPO, uh, UK Intellectual Property Office, following Rob's case uh, to help people. Um, whether it does is a separate question, um, but uh, it's definitely better than nothing uh, in terms of um, <laughs> Rob. <laughs> <laughs> well, we helped, we helped uh, edit and review that, that document, but... Um, As did we, I should hasten to say. Yeah, the, the, IPO can't, um, the IPO can't issue um, guidelines that, that can't be defended in the state of law, so it's very vague and doesn't really tell you much. I, mean, I, I agree with that because we also had a hand in that document and I, I, I think the frustration is that obviously you're filing a, 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 an IP right as an official, as you see it, government entity and it is a government entity um, and of course it's not that entity that then decides at the end of the day whether or not your IP right has any usefulness either because of its validity or indeed whether it catches the infringement. They are only advisory because it's the courts that decide whether it's whether it's going to work in a particular instance. So the government can give guidance, but it's only guidance covering a it has to be relatively theoretical, I think. I'm yeah, sure. it's certainly more it's guidance. Difficult to help. More guidance than was available in two thousand three. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. Um, Martin and Ellie, to those designers who may not be able to manufacture themselves, how would you suggest that they best sort of monetize their creativity? Well, I mean, then you're into the complexities of licensing. And I think even more, in a way, than patents or IP, you need really good advice around what you're doing around licensing because it is very complicated, particularly in terms of the markets that you may or may not trade in. And um, you know, you've got to get independent, good advice from an expert in licensing around those issues. It's really really critical and there's no way you can give anybody general guidance other than that you've got to speak to a specialist and you've got to get a really clear insight into it but it's probably there's worth no knowing that you can do it you can license your you can invent something without having to necessarily worry about Taking it making market. it yes yeah, totally. because i think some people don't necessarily realize that you can get no, that's Without a good selling point. your yeah. business. I you think can a, lot, a lot of entrepreneurs sort of think they're the ones that have to take it all the way. And certainly all a lot of academics yeah. we've worked with certainly yeah. may have been up the ones with the research and the great knowledge and know-how, but not the right people to take it to market. So yeah, definitely yeah. that's where it is possible. But it, it's like, as you say, Martin, it's hooking into the right expertise to get, give it you is. that advice. We will all, if we have um, a startup or an inventor coming through the door, we'll always ask the question, what does success look like mm. for you? Because you've got to very quickly get to an idea. Are you talking about setting your own business up? Are you talking about developing an idea that you just want to sell? Mm -hmm. What is it that you're trying to do? And do you realise what it's going to take and how long it's going to take? Because it's always so much longer than people imagine it will be. Um, but you know, pe people do win out in the long term, and the benefits can be you know plentiful if they get it right. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly thinking about that dimension of can I, can I license the idea, who might my customer for that be, who do I go talk to first, it, it's very important. I think that point's very important. It, it's not just going to the lawyers to talk about no. protecting yourself with IP rights or getting a license agreement in place. It's about who actually could use your product. It's back to something Ellie was saying earlier about thinking laterally about your design, your invention, even if it's a clasp of design, it could be a clasp which yes. could then be used for something else that somebody found really tricky to think how we're going to make this clasp safe because I don't want it to have metal in it because it's dangerous of swallowing small parts, mm -hmm. etc. Could that be used in another mm -hmm. industry? And going and talking to the right people yeah. about how even to license it, mm -hmm. like application, before then working out how one would do it through making sure you've got the right protection and making sure you've got the right agreement in place to make sure you get paid for it. Mm -hmm. I think just, just thinking about that and, and hearing your own story, Rob, I think it's a minefield out there. It's where would you start if you're an entrepreneur? And we're so focused with Spark, Design Council Spark, 
like pulling the right community together around these entrepreneurs so that we can try and find those experts for them so they don't have to try and do that on their own because it is really difficult. I mean, there is the IPO out there, there is the British Library IP Centre, you know, anti-copying design is, is excellent too, but there are also maybe smaller independent players. Um, there are lots of other players willing to give advice, such as yourself, um, WD Gowling, WP Gowling, um, which is amazing, and I think that sort of advice they just wouldn't be able to get otherwise. I think having somewhere to go where they can get all that in independent advice, I think is still something that people struggle with who are taking products to market. That's why, as I say, you know, on Spark, which we're trying to make that happen. And the more people you talk to, the better picture you can paint about yeah. what it yeah. is you're trying to protect. And yeah. don't just go and have one meeting with one IP lawyer, exactly. try and talk to more people Many. about it. Well, and we've also visited trade shows, and you go and talk to the channels at trade shows, you know, and learn from those distributors. Because they, if you don't have to disclose necessarily what it is that you've got, you can just talk about it in general to get some feedback on what the appetite might be in the market. Is this something that's been there already, you know? Um, what would their approach to be? You know, how will they buy? Just finding things out of that nature can be very helpful. Well, simply going to a trade show and seeing that other people have got clasps on their products. I use the clasp as an example, but uh, <laughs> got clasps on their products and they may not be working brilliantly. And you could say, I've got a great clasp. I'm not making whatever it is. Yeah. Well, yeah. Richard Joseph at the previous thing, you know, he said one of the things he does frequently is just to just walk a trade show and see what's out there. You find a lot of copies. Yep. Um, you you learn a lot about what's happening in the market. It's a power, It can be a powerful way. Now the other practical approach one can take when you're thinking about whether to go licensing or, or manufacturing is actually appreciate that actually if, if I take a certain amount of risk and do some low-level manufacturing or find a subcontract manufacturer to make a limited run to then get some interest in the product, to get some, some market presence and then approach some larger players with a view to saying, look, licensing may be something I'll consider. And then your commercial discussions are so Makes much more real. So much more re reasonable and re realistic. Yeah. And crowdfunding platforms can help with that yeah. as well. Yeah. If you've had a successful campaign, then you're able to then um, talk to leverage people. off that. Mm -hmm. yeah. the, the tricky bit with crowdfunding campaigns is also that you need to have built quite a large following already to start with. So yeah. again, it assumes that you're open and willing to talk about it or even show something um, to mm. the public. And so you've got to have your IP in place before yes, you exactly. Yes. Yeah, I think Martin's point is really key about uh, when, especially when inventors come to us, the question is, yours is about what does success look like? Our clients, what do you want to be doing in five years? Do you want to be running a company? Or do you want to be designing more cool stuff? Um, initially, I wanted to be a product designer and I licensed the idea of Trunky to a, a toy company who didn't have much commercial success with it um, and then got frustrated with my professional career not working for Martin by then I might add I'm sure that was a key and decided I'd have a stab at it myself but if you'd asked me that question at the start I'd have said no I'll license it um, but it was only through uh, this way you kind of walk through life without a straight line that kind of ended up doing what I'm doing mm. cool um, we're nearly at time, but just uh, maybe if each of you want to give one piece of advice, I mean, you've given lots of advice already, one last tip for the audience of something to do with IP. I'm not going to lead you as to what it has to be necessarily, but just something. Um, take home message. Rob? I guess I can only say uh, don't let our case dis dishearten you. Um, our registered design has been incredibly successful in Asia. Um, we've taken 4,500 listings down. Uh, to 4,501 was rejected in the UK by the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the um, crucial thing is that uh, if you want to do something and you do get it to market, just don't underestimate what you're, what you're going to need to do to protect it. If you're successful, um, you will be copied to, to a high degree that you can possibly imagine and you will spend a lot of time trying to fix that. And I've learned a lot from both Rob and Richard, you know, talking to them about their business and what they need to do and it is quite staggering how much work they need to do to, to defend their IP and it, as Rob said it's their brand it's mm. everything that gives them value as a business yeah to, to, to echo that point in many ways creating IP is great but registering it and then being able to protect it gives the stakeholders in that business investors employees um, 
everyone involved so much more confidence that, that, that your, your business and your opportunity is going to go somewhere. Um, it, it, without it, um, people can sort of get demotivated. So it's, it's, it shouldn't be underestimated that, yes, come up with a great idea, but then follow it through with the, the necessary protection. Annie? I think seeing, seeing it as a positive, it's a catalyst for innovation, and it forces us to keep on thinking, building on our ideas and building on the business. So if anything, it's sort of thinking differently about IP in itself as, as rather than something that is all about defending something is is proactive approach to innovation so i would say think, let's think about it in a different way great thank you very much and um, just to echo some of the comments that have been made there are there is lots of free help out there for people um there are uh, i know some things on rob's uh trunky website for some blogs on how to protect yourselves um there is um a web page we have called uh, gowling wlg dot com forward slash designs for life which has a booklet on uh, how to approach some of these general questions it's also worth considering talking to your local trademark or patent attorney they're the people who actually file these designs and trademarks and patents we don't we don't do that um, but we uh, do work with a lot of people who do and those those attorneys will often listen to your ideas and try and help you work out the best way to protect yourselves I mean we will give you the general advice as well but but the, a lot of these people will actually give you quite a long um, uh, consultation without charging in order to establish what it is you need. Um, you'll probably need something, so they'll probably end up being paid something in the end, but they're not normally, the most of the ones we work with, they're not normally looking just to sell you as many IP rights as possible. They will, they will just work out what you need and um, help you because it is a minefield. Um, and as Rob says, maybe talk to more than one, get ideas from a couple, because that'll give you a bit of an idea as to how good they are as well, or whether they're the right fit for your company. Um, thanks for listening, um, and thank you everybody who's uh, participated. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. I think that's really good.